If you have a Bible and you want to turn to Mark 15, I actually finished a chapter tonight. That leaves one chapter left of only 20 verses. Uh, titled tonight, The Results of the Crucifixion, Part 2. We're going to read again verses 33 to 47. Mark 15, beginning in verse 33. We read, And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Well, behold, he calls for Elijah. And one ran and lifted and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain or in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And there were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the less and of Joseph and of Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. And now when the even was come, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a sepulcher which was hewn out of a rock and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he was laid. We talked last time about the results of the crucifixion, in case you don't know it, are still ongoing. <laughs> when he said it is finished, that didn't mean like it was finished then. It's done with ongoing effects is actually what the Greek verb means. Look at verses 37 and 38, and it said, Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. He died. He breathed his last, in other words. And we looked last time at verse 38. The veil of the temple was rent in two from top to bottom. It was rent supernaturally from the top to the bottom. A four-inch thick veil was torn in two. We said by the hand of God because no man could reach it and no man would have been able to tear it. And it wouldn't have happened by accident. And we said it signified four things. That it signified, first of all, that the glory of God previous to that had been shielded from view. And now, since that veil was rent, the glory of God can be seen by all men. And how is it seen? We read that scripture out of 2 Corinthians. It's seen in the face. The glory of God is seen in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the light of that knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, where God has removed the veil. Symbolically, it was removed in the temple, but it's removed from our hearts to where that light can then shine in. And we can see his grace and his glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would say primarily with what we're looking at now in the cross during the crucifixion. That's where his glory is most revealed. And also we said the second thing is it's no longer confined to one room in one place in one location. That now his glory can be seen since the veil's been rent. It is spread out over the entire earth to every continent. Every man, woman, and child potentially could see that. 
It also signified that that Old Testament sacrificial system is obsolete. It's done away with. It was a foreshadowing of that to come. All the sacrifices, all the rituals, all the blood that was shed, the showbread, the candlestick and its light, all of those types were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're no longer necessary. All of them pointed towards him. Everything that was written, everything that was done pointed towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But we said that the greatest message that was sent when that veil was rent was that the barrier that existed between God and man is forever done away. Before that, you couldn't go into the direct presence of God. But after that, everyone that is a believer, small or great, weak or powerful, whatever, if you're a believer, you now have, if you believe it, direct access to God's presence. We went through Hebrews 10, 19 to 22. That access isn't because you feel worthy, because most of the time we don't. And we're not, but we're made worthy through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 10 says this, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, the writer at Hebrews says, well, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we want to move on from that. I just kind of wanted to just recap that briefly and quickly. But after the veil is mentioned, I'm saying we have three witnesses are mentioned next that were there viewing Jesus's death on the cross. The centurion the women who followed Jesus, and Joseph of Arimathea. I mean, there were others, but that's what's specifically talked about in these next verses that we're going to look at. And God's grace, we'll see, was poured out on all three of these people or groups or whatever in three different ways as a direct result of the cross. The way I want to deal with this tonight is I want to deal with them in the reverse order they're given because it's the centurion, the women, and Joseph of Arimathea if we read down through. But I want to deal with Joseph first then the women, and end on the centurion. You can read it straight through, but we're going to preach it backwards tonight. So first I want to look at Joseph of Arimathea. In case you don't know, there was a three-hour gap. Jesus was crucified at nine in the morning, and when did he die? How many hours did it take for him to die? Six. Crucified at nine? At 12, what happened? Darkness over the entire earth for three hours. That's what happened, three hours. So then he dies, he comes out of that darkness, and he basically proclaims it is finished, dies at 3. So in 3 until sundown on Friday, that's how much time before the Sabbath began. And according to Jewish laws, we know this from John 19.31, the, the body should not remain on those crosses during the Sabbath. They were going to be taken out. So what was Pilate's answer to that? Those guys would linger for days on the cross, generally. They wouldn't die that quick. So he's like break their legs. And why would they break their legs? Because they'd have to push up on their legs with their feet to be able to breathe. And once they couldn't do that, they just slowly suffocated to death. I mean, what a way to go. But that's what they did. Joseph didn't have a whole lot of time from the time that our Lord Jesus died. He had to go to Pilate to request the body, take care of his body, and get it in the grave. When we look here at verse 43, or we start in 42, it says, now when the even was come, the evening, because it was the preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, 
verse 43, it says Joseph of Arimathea, and it says that he is an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God. He came and went in boldly unto Pilate, and it says he craved the body of Jesus. It says in King James he was an honorable council member. Honorable means he was highly respected, highly regarded. He was prominent. And Luke tells us that Joseph, in his account of this, says he was a good man and a just man. Now, we know from reading the account of how that trial of Jesus went, that is a rare trait for members of the Sanhedrin. There was two of those council members that it said didn't go along with what all the other ones did. Joseph and who was the other one? Yeah, Nicodemus. Nick. There were only two that named. They didn't go along with the kangaroo court and all the injustice. And if you read John 19 and you read the crucifixion account, Joseph of Arimathea, now he was a rich man. It just says that he took down the body of Jesus. Maybe he did, I don't know, but he probably would have had servants. But it describes there that it was Joseph and Nicodemus, the two of them were there involved with taking the Lord down from the cross. And that's no small thing for those men to do that. Said they put him in fine linen, which was expensive, and it said Nicodemus brought this anointment and whatever all it was, spices, that weighed a hundred pounds. And that's what they wrapped our Lord up in before they didn't get him fully prepared. That's why the women had to come back after the Sabbath to more have him prepared for burial. But that was enough to get him in the grave. That's what they did. And I think here that Mark, with that verse we just looked at, he indicates that Joseph was a believer by adding he waited for the kingdom of God. So he was a pious man, a Jew, a just man, a good man. Those are all the indications we have. But I think we have an even bigger indicator that he was a follower and a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, where it says that he went in boldly. Verse 43, it says, He came in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Jesus went in boldly. In other translations, it's given as he took courage. He took a risk, gathered up courage. And that word means to show boldness in the face of danger. And you think, well, what was the danger? Well, you got to think about it. Pilate was not pro-Jewish. He didn't like the Jews. And he was not the nicest of men. He was just a political animal. He would do what was ever politically expedient. And here he's got to go in there. He's got to get his courage up because he's got to go in there to the man who ordered the crucifixion, the execution of Jesus. And what was the charge he was executed for? Treason against Rome. That was the charge. And anyone coming to him and asking for that body, Pilate could have crucified Joseph. That's why it says he had to get up his courage to go do that. Because he could have been accused of being a sympathizer or a conspirator with him. And Joseph didn't know. He didn't know what Pilate would do. And he put his life on the line for the sake of the Lord. He really did. And that's why I'm saying I believe he really was a believer. I can't prove it. But I think he was. If he wasn't then, he sure did become one after the resurrection. But our Lord said this. Because you think about it, He's a prominent man, well thought of in the Sanhedrin. He's putting his reputation and his life on the line, not only in front of Pilate, but in front of all the other Jewish elite people. That's like no small thing. It's like a Ph.D. down there at Southern is going to come here and start speaking in tongues and go back and tell them about it. That's not likely to happen. I've been there. I just know how all that works. But Jesus said this, whoever therefore, didn't he say this, shall confess me before men. Him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. And whosoever shall deny me before men, 
him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. I always thought that was a hard verse. Because there's a lot of times we compromise because of our pride around unregenerate people because we know what they're going to think and they're going to think less of you. So we can learn a lot from Joseph of Arimathea right there, can't we? What he was willing to do. And I think there was great grace and faith given to Joseph that day. The effects of the cross, I think he's seeing this happen, this crucifixion happen, and his love for the Lord and having his eyes open to the cross produced this boldness. Because that's what the cross will do. You say, if he was willing to do that for me, I should be willing to give him my all. And he's willing to risk his life and his reputation. But it also says, the other thing it says, that he craved the body of Jesus. And so what was the big deal about that, that he asked or craved for or begged? Any of that could be what that word meant. Well, listen, typically when the Romans crucified a criminal, the body was not given to the families or even given any kind of normal burial. You know what they would do with the body? You know what Gehenna was? Gehenna was the trash dump. There was a constant fire going. Jesus referred to it as hell. And they would take those bodies down and throw them in Gehenna to show contempt for the criminal. That's what they would do. Or many times they just leave those bodies on the cross after they died for days on end while the body's decomposing. And that had to be a gory, grisly sight. But they did that as a warning to the people of this is what you can have to look forward to if you want to rebel against the Roman government and authorities. That's what they would do. And he goes in there and he says, no, I would like to have that body. He put a lot on the line when he did that. And it says in verse 44 that Pilate marveled. That's the second time in this chapter that he's marveled if he was already dead. And like I said, it would take him two or three days to die. They had to break the other guy's legs. They probably weren't close to dying at that time. So he calls in the centurion. He says, I need to make sure this guy is really dead before I'm going to give you the body. Isn't that kind of a big deal as far as people that will say the old swoon theory? He wasn't really dead. We got verification here. The centurion, he says, has he been dead any time? In other words, he didn't just pass. Oh, the centurion said, oh, no, he is dead. In fact, they made sure he was dead by sticking a spear right up his side into his heart. Once he was sure that the centurion confirmed it in verse 45, look what it says. It says, when he knew it of the centurion, it says, then he gave the body to Joseph. And Joseph didn't spare any expense to bury Jesus. Gave him a king's burial, a rich man's burial. Look what it says, verse 46. He bought that fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the fine linen, and laid him in a sepulcher, which was hewn out of rock, and rolled a stone upon the door of the sepulcher. Now, only the wealthy back then were buried in rocks or tombs or sepulchers like we see there. So John tells us this sepulchre of Joseph's was right near where this crucifixion took place in a garden that was right near, near there. Also said, John tells us that it was brand new. Never a man had been laid in there. Matthew writes, not only that, it was Joseph's own tomb. And that would have been expensive. He was a rich man. It would have been a nice one. You get in some of these commentaries or whatever that have pictures and you can see what it probably looked like. And it would have been a nice one back then. It would have been the equivalent of, if you ever been down here to Cave Hill Cemetery in Louisville, I mean, they got some pretty fancy grave sites there I mean, for some rich and famous people. And that's what it would have been like. But that's just the fulfillment of Scripture, isn't it? You know, it says in Isaiah 53, 9 that Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, it said he made his grave with the wicked 
and with the rich in his death because he was going to minister to both, wasn't he? So God's grace was on the life of this rich Jew, Joseph of Arimathea. Because we read in 1 Corinthians, what does Paul say? Not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But it doesn't say none are, does it? It just says not many. Because everyone likes to think about, all oh, that poor old drunk, all oh, that poor old rhino, all oh, that poor old heroin addict. And they're the down and out. And that's who we should minister to. Well, listen, there's also the up and out. Because I'm telling you, we ought to all know this. Everybody's out, aren't we? Whether you're the down and out or the up or out, we all need salvation. But here's the thing we see with Joseph. Unlike that rich young ruler, and he came to Jesus and he's like, Lord, what must I do to be saved? I mean, he just acts like he's gung-ho. I'll do whatever you say. Well, then Jesus lays down, well, here's what you need to do. You need to sell everything you have, give to the poor, come, follow me. And between come and follow me, he says, you need to do what? Pick up your cross. Come, pick up your cross and follow me. And what does it say about that rich young ruler? He went away sorrowful because he wasn't willing to do that. His reputation was on the line. But this man, Joseph of Arimathea, we're saying we're seeing the effects of the cross and God's grace on this rich man's life. And I've met a few people that were rich that were like that, but not many. But he's given everything, everything the rich young ruler and some of us sometimes aren't willing to do. He's willing to give away his reputation. What kind of reputation do we have? I mean, I've lost all of mine. It's just you want to hold on to that a little bit, I guess. You know, he gave it all away. His reputation, his expensive tomb, and even he risked his own life, didn't he? He did. He really did. So he's a model, I would say, what we see there with him. He's a model of true discipleship. That's what you see. The second witness, we're moving on backwards. We went on our list backwards here. The second of the witnesses I like to look at are the women. Jesus cried with a loud voice, verse 37, and gave up the ghost. And then in verse 47, there were also women looking. Now, they weren't real close. It says they were afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him, ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. Now, if we only had Mark's gospel to read, if we only had that to read, there's been very little, if almost none, mention of women as followers of Jesus. Just so there's women that came to get healing. But as far as being a follower, being disciples, there's no mention in that at all. Except for we have the one case, the one exception of, in Mark 14, the woman with the alabaster box that got criticized that she could have sold that and given all the money to the poor. That woman. But other than her, that's about it. And it's unlike Luke's gospel, where women are mentioned frequently. Luke makes a lot of mention of women. You know, we all know about Martha and Mary as being disciples of the Lord Jesus. The woman, this is not the same as the woman with the alabaster box, but they're having a a dinner at the Pharisee's house, and she comes up behind, and she was a woman of ill repute. But she came up behind Jesus. She had a revelation, too, of who he was and what he was going to do for her and what she deserved. Her love for her Lord because she knew at that point she was forgiven much. Came up behind and she's crying and wiping his feet with her hair. She broke that expensive perfume on there. And Jesus tells him, he's like, you guys, 
you're having me here for dinner, but all you're doing is really wanting to have me for lunch and eat me up. He said, you didn't give me a kiss. You didn't wash my feet. This woman has repeatedly kissed my feet, repeatedly, my feet, not just my cheek. And she's crying. You didn't give me anything for my feet. She's anointing my feet. She's washing my feet with her tears and her hair. You didn't anoint me at all, which was customary. But she, she broke it and poured it on my feet, on my head. See, she showed true love because she was forgiven much. Luke talks about women quite a bit. Luke 8, he tells about the women that followed and ministered to Jesus way before the crucifixion, just in Luke chapter 8. And he talks about Mary Magdalene, out of whom, it's funny they add this in there, Mary Magdalene, out of whom was cast seven devils. I mean, that had to be a pretty big deliverance for her. And out of gratitude, she followed the Lord along with other women. Talks about Joanna. Here's another woman that she was the wife of Herod's steward. There's another person that, a woman there, that put her reputation and life on the line. It, it mentions Susanna, and it says, and many others who ministered unto him out of their substance. So Mark tells us in verse 41 that there had been women following him all the way back since the beginning of his ministry in Galilee, but he's never mentioned them before. They don't come in the scene here until the very end, chapter 15 and the crucifixion. But Jesus and his disciples, what we would need to see is they received a lot of help and a lot of help from women, much help. Look at verse 41. And also when he was in Galilee, followed him, and it says, and ministered unto him and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. I think they were part of when he made that triumphal entry. The women were a big part of that. It's interesting that the women disciples are the ones who witnessed Jesus's actual death, his burial, and his resurrection. Because where are all the male disciples? They fled. Now the women may be afar off. It's probably not the best way to follow the Lord, but at least they're there, aren't they? They're there following. But what's interesting is that in that time and culture, women were not allowed to testify in court as witnesses. Their witness was considered to be worthless. Wouldn't let them testify in court. Yet God, in his infinite wisdom, placed women as the primary witnesses to the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. So we saw right there where they witnessed his death. And look what it says in verse 47. It says, And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph did what? They beheld where he was laid. They saw him being buried. And then when you look over in chapter 16, verse 9, look what it says. It says, now when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared first to who? Mary Magdalene, the woman that had the big deliverance session. Appears first to her, not the guys. The guys aren't in any of that. Unlike the culture at that time, I mean, women were like below the bottom of the totem pole, really, in a lot of ways in how they were treated. But at the time the Bible was written, God never dismisses or treats women as unimportant or inferior. Amen? Amen. We know, we've heard this, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Galatians 3, it says this, For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. And there's neither male nor female, 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. But, you're like, I knew you were going to get to that. So that doesn't mean that there's no distinction in roles, abilities, and temperaments. Women, I'm saying they're given prominent roles in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, and in the epistles. You read especially the end of Romans. I mean, man, half the people that he names to thank are women that were involved in his ministry. But the roles are what? Their roles are ministering to the saints, opening their homes up. They would have had, they had, church was happening in homes. That would have been a big strain on a woman, I think, at that time. Their prayers and being keepers of the home. That's what we're talked about. They are never in the New Testament given the roles of pastor, teacher, or leadership in the church. Just because that American evangelical Christians want to put women in the positions of pastor and teacher doesn't make it scriptural. Unless you want to twist scripture. If you would, put something there in Mark. I thought I'd just brighten everyone's evening up by bringing this up. And turn back to 1 Timothy. Please, 1 Timothy 2. Beginning in verse 9. And Paul writes to Timothy in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest. I think a woman should dress modestly is the principle there, not to draw attention to her body. Dress themselves, and that includes men too, in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becomes women professing godliness. They should really be adorned with good works, he says. Oh, and then he gets into a sticky area. Let the women learn in silence with all subjection. He says, but I suffer or allow not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And then he tells us why. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding that, he says, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with sobriety. Now, to me, that is pretty straightforward and it's really not hard to understand. I'm serious about that. Not too long ago, I heard a leading charismatic pastor take that verse and said, well, that doesn't mean that women can't be pastors and teachers. And I'm thinking, well, then, what was Paul talking about? <laughs> Honestly, I mean, what's he talking about then? If English means English or Greek means Greek, you can read it however you want to in whatever translation. I'm saying Paul even gives the reason why that women are not to be in authority and teachers. Teachers. What does he say? Because women are more easily open to deception. Let's look again at verses 13 and 14. He says, for Adam was first formed, then Eve... But Adam was not, and that's a four in verse 13. That means because. Here's the reason. That's why he's saying. He goes, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. So whether we like to hear it or not, women are not engineered by God. They're engineered to be more nurturing and emotional, less logical, and not designed to be leaders like men are. That's not to say that women have no logic, but occasionally I might wonder. No, I'm just kidding. Totally kidding. Totally kidding. My wife's the most logical person I know. I know it. Nobody likes to hear that. I mean, but really, it's not a put down, 
but you know, they had to have an article. Was it Time Magazine? Who's the one that came out with an article that they discovered that men and women are physically different, and they'll never be they'll, the women will never catch up with the guys. But it's like, duh, really? <laughs> I mean, they did add an article on that, but they're not designed by God to be the same physically, emotionally, and in temperament. But I'm saying we are in the midst of a culture that's building strongholds on what a woman's role is supposed to be. God never intended what we're projected on TV and in movies and in commercials and whatever all else. That has never been God's intention for a woman. Never. And I'm saying it's a curse on the U.S. of A. that's happening. And with these women here, my point is, I just, that was a little sidetrack parentheses. He's poured out his grace on these women, following the Lord at a distance, but his grace is on them. They are still following, and the men are nowhere to be seen. And that's true here at the cross, and that's true in most churches that you hear about. It's the women have to be the ones to give spiritual direction or whatever, because the men are AWOL, whether it's in the church or a lot of times in the families. It's no put down to women. That's my point. It's not. It's just we have our roles to play and we're going to be most fulfilled and most happy when men or women are in their God-given roles because the bottom line is we're not smarter than the Lord, are we? If he's designed it and set up a certain way and we say we follow the word and he's given us clear direction in the word. So it shouldn't really be a problem, should it? But it can be. But they're the first ones. They saw him die. They saw him buried and the first ones to see him alive. And to me, that's no small thing. That's a big deal, really. All right, we've covered two, and I'm still alive, and we're going to move on to the centurion here, verse 39. The third one, look what it says here in verse 39. It says, And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now, you know, we've been talking a lot about centurions, haven't we, about the centurion of Luke 7, but... You know, all the centurions in the New Testament are basically good men. They're presented that way. This centurion stationed in Jerusalem. The centurion we talked about in Luke 7 was stationed up near the Sea of Galilee on the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. The centurion that is in Acts 10, Cornelius, is stationed clear over on the coast at Caesarea. It was the coastline of Samaria. So we've kind of got them spread out in the New Testament. And like we said, I've already said this a hundred times, I'm going to say it a hundred other times, that they're in charge of a hundred men. It's <laughs> a lot of hundreds in there. But this centurion was what? He's given the oversight of four soldiers, and they are the execution squad of Jesus and two thieves. That's what they are. This centurion and four men are the execution squad. We need to remember that centurions, and this is key, I think, to what's happening here in this verse. They were men chosen not for their passion. They weren't unstable men. But they were veterans, hardened veterans that were picked to be centurions because they were stable, they were brave, and they were of sound judgment. And these men would have been men that respected authority. They would have respected justice. They were men that lived by the basic sense of right and wrong. I think they had a sense of that. So I don't think they would have had much time for liars, thieves, troublemakers, rebels. That would have been against their grain because they're good men and they were men who could be trusted to do their jobs honorably, efficiently, fairly, and with integrity. I mean, that's what we see in the New Testament here. And this centurion is standing before our Lord Jesus saying, truly, 
this man is the son of God. What led up to that? That didn't just like happen right that second. What led up to that? And I think it would have been what the centurion witnessed along the way. So he would have been there when Pilate questioned Jesus. When he asked Jesus, he would have been standing there. Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, thou sayest it. Basically, that's the same as saying yes. It's equivalent to saying yes. And in John's gospel, he went on to say, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, he said, then my servants would fight. And you put yourself in the centurion. Listen to this man say that. He's like a king with soldiers that won't fight. Now, that's a new one on me. That's what he probably would have been thinking at that point. And Pilate goes on and he says, so when Jesus said, thou sayest, or basically, yes, he says, so you're a king then. And Jesus' answer then was, would you say that I'm a king, but I was born into this world not to conquer and set up an earthly kingdom. But he said, I am sent here to bear witness to the truth. And everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. And I'm thinking at that point, I'm putting myself in that guy's shoes listening to this. And he would have probably thought that this guy, this fellow, is a little bit odd. But there is something about him. I think he would have already started picking up on this. Something about the way he carries himself. And there is something about, even though these words are strange to me, I've never heard a man speak like this. There's a certain ring of authority to the way he's speaking and carrying himself. That guy would have picked up on that, I believe. I think he wouldn't have thought he's crazy. He would have just thought he's different at this point. Pilate, we're told, continues to question the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does Jesus do? It says, if you look up there, and my Bible's on the same page in Mark 15, verse 5. He's questioning him, asking, verse 4, Behold how many things they witness against thee, and you say nothing. It says in verse 5, But Jesus yet answered nothing. And it says there, so that Pilate marveled. Pilate marveled. I think the centurion sitting back listening to all this would have at least raised his eyebrows. Hmm. He might not have marveled. He would have at least raised his eyebrows because he's probably not like as passionate and whatever emotional as Pilate would have been. He's more reasoned, but he's got to be raising his eyebrows at what this guy's saying and doing. And then the other thing leading up to this confession that he made is he would have been part of the crowd of the soldiers that mocked and ridiculed Jesus. Look what it says in chapter 15, verses 16 to 20. Just read it again. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. That's all of them. And they clothed him with purple, plaited a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews, smote him on the head with a reed, and spit on him, and bowing their knees, worshipped him. And when they mocked him, took off the purple from him, and put his own clothes on him, they led him out to crucify him. We have no idea whether the centurion participated, like was right in there with him doing all that, or if he just stood back and observed. But either way, he would have noticed this about Jesus's reaction. Because what was Jesus's reaction to all of this that went on, all the mocking, spitting, cruelty? It was one of silent, submissive love, wasn't it? Because there was no anger, there was no hatred, no retaliation. And Peter says this in 1 Peter, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. 
I know I've said it before, I'm kind of repeating myself, but I'm trying to paint a picture here. That guy would have been, his keen eye, that centurion, he would have seen this and he'd have been like, I've never seen anything like this. This has got to all be building up in him. I've never seen anybody take this kind of abuse and not retaliate in some form. Never seen that. And he would have also, once he's hanging on the cross, once he is nailed to the cross and Jesus wouldn't have fought him when that was happening, when he's being nailed and put up there, he also would have been right there. That was his job. He had to make sure they hung there. Nobody took him away and they died. That was his job. He's not going anywhere. So he's listening. He's paying attention to everything that's going on there. And he would have heard all the accusations that were hurled at him. So you put something there and just turn back to Matthew 27, because Matthew 27 gives some significant things that were said in verses 39 to 44. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 39, and it says this, Jesus is hung on the cross. Verse 38, there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, one on the left. And they that passed by, they reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. And look what they say to him. If you be the son of God, then come down from the cross. He would have heard that. And likewise, also the chief priest mocking him with the scribes and elders said he saved others himself. He cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him for They're saying that Jesus said, I am the son of God. That's twice. The thief also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. And we go back to Mark. So he would have heard all of that. He would have heard all of that. And God is working on his heart by his grace at this point. He also would have seen Jesus hanging there. He would have been right there and heard him say, about him and his four companions. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. You know what else he would have seen? He would have seen Jesus' concern for his mother. And I'm sure he would have thought, you know, that is a very honorable thing for a son to care for his mother. This guy here has got to be in so much pain and look at him. And yet he has got enough presence of mind to care for his mother? I've never seen anything like that. Had to be thinking about that. He would also witness the two thieves nailed on one side and the other to Jesus, railing on him. And then guess what else he would have heard? The exchange between the two thieves. The ones like mocking the Lord, get us down from here if you are. And finally the other one, his eyes were opened again by God's grace. And he says, do you not fear God seeing you are in the same condemnation? And the one thief is saying to the other thief, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But he's hearing a thief say about Jesus, this man has done nothing wrong. And a centurion had to be thinking inside himself, everyone is proclaiming this man's innocent. I heard Pilate say he'd done nothing wrong. He was innocent. Herod sent him back, did nothing to him worthy of death. And now a thief is saying that. Calling him as the conversation went by, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. So this guy's like, how? What's going on with all of this? It's got to be having an impact on this centurion. And on top of that, after all of this goes on, after three hours, then comes the darkness. 
Now, it's, this wasn't a solar eclipse. How long did the solar eclipse last, the one we just had? That was a bit eerie. I was out at Kentucky Down Under with some little kids, and I'm thinking, you know, this is kind of creepy. It was a little eerie and creepy, but could you imagine? I mean, I could still, though, it wasn't like total black where I was at, and I was right fairly close to the place that was supposed to be one of the darkest. But this was a supernatural darkness. There was nothing that caused it. It was the full moon. It was the Passover. This was not a solar eclipse. And this wasn't dust in the air. This is obviously supernatural and a darkness that could be felt. Wow, he had to be thinking. And then on top of that, this man that is dying is crying out his last breath with a loud voice. Nobody does that when they're crucified. They can barely breathe. Then on top of that, the earthquake. He wouldn't have seen the veil. He wasn't near that. He didn't see that. But he would have felt the earthquake. He would have seen the rocks splitting open. And all of that is doing a work on this guy's heart. And God's spirit opened the eyes. At that point, he'd been opening them all along. Opened the eyes of a battle-hardened soldier. And look what it says in verse 39. And when the centurion, it says, which stood or who stood over against him. That means he stood facing him, or as another translation is saying, standing right in front of him. He wasn't like off to the side watching all this happen. you got to get the picture. He has moved himself. He is standing. It, it actually means directly opposite of something, like the wind's blowing one way and you're going into it the opposite way. That's what the word means. He's standing right in front of the crucified Lord. I just picture him. He is, he's blocked everything out at this point. All of this has happened, and he is intently staring at him, thinking about what's going on here, watching, it says in Mark, the way he dies. And that's where I think his focus is. He's got a mind that is trained to take in desperate situations and what's going on. I think all of this that we just described is going through his head at this point. Going through his head, Pilate's questions, Jesus' answer, the soldier's mockery, and Jesus' response to that. This man, they say, has claimed to be the Son of God. Well, they don't believe him. But I know he is innocent and just. He doesn't appear to me like a liar at all. Claiming to be the Son of God, one that says, I have come to speak the truth. And he's thinking to himself, his eyes are open. And not only that, but God seems to agree. Because I'm seeing supernatural things happening here right in front of me that has got God's stamp of approval on this man's life. And there he is. He's standing right in front of the dead body of our Lord. Right there looking at him. And God opens his eyes to see that Jesus is indeed the Son of God who had to suffer. He might not have understood everything, but someone that had to suffer and did so with glory and majesty. And that's what we have, verse 39. And when the centurion which stood over against him saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, his eyes are open, truly, he's not wondering, truly this man was the Son of God. So it didn't come from the lips of a Jew, did it? Not from his disciples, they had all left. But God picks this Gentile soldier to make the great confession, giving him a revelation to someone who had no prior knowledge of the Bible, more than likely, he's the captain of the execution squad, an enemy, really. Truly, this man is the Son of God. I believe this statement is the climax of the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. So if you would, 
turn back all the way back to Mark 1.1 where we began. And look what it says there. This is what Mark says. This is my intention. This is the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And what does he say? The Son of God. That's what this book is all about. Mark's saying, I'm going to go from here on out. I'm beginning it right here in chapter 1. I'm going to write to my Roman readers. He was more than likely writing to the Roman readers that Jesus is the Son of God and the entire gospel he's written. This is not a biography in the sense that we think this is stuff that is chosen to show by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is the Son of God. You remember we talked about this? His disciples asked him in Mark 4, 41, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? What manner of man is this? Mark's raising the question there through the disciples and he's answering it, isn't it? All the way up to this point, the point of the crucifixion. And that's what we've looked at for the past 57 messages. This is worth the message 57 is what manner of man is this? If you've been paying attention or reading or even half paying attention, we should be seeing now at this point what manner of man this is. Amen. And it should be building our faith when we see how he dealt with situations, what manner of man he is. You should be able to say by the grace of God, just like the centurion, truly this man was the Son of God. We should be able to say that just like him. So we know what Son of God he was, don't we? That's what Mark's saying. He's the king with authority and power. We've seen this in this gospel over every disease, every demon, and all of nature. One that spoke the word of God like no other man did. What else are we seeing about truly this man is the Son of God? Jesus is not just that because the entire second part of this gospel is dealing with what? It's all going towards his crucifixion. And he's talking about that God-forbidden word, suffering. He's talking about his suffering. He's got a servant's heart, willing to humble himself to serve others to the point of death. What I'm saying is the cross is the supreme revelation of Jesus as the Son of God. And that's what the centurion is confessing as he's standing there facing the cross, looking right at our Lord. He proclaims what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God and what true faith is. Now, let me end on this, what this man said I thought was good. He says, the Son of God on whom rests the unique blessing and love of the Father chooses not to exalt himself but to follow a path of servanthood, a path of obedience to his father that brought shame, humiliation, suffering, and finally death. And in viewing the cross, the world sees the true heart and nature of the son and the father. And it's through faith in him that we have full access to the father. Truly, this man was the Son of God, and that's what we see what it means to be the Son of God. Not only the glory and power, but that servant's heart. That's what it means. So the centurion, the women, and Joseph of Arimathea, all were witnesses of the death of Jesus. The grace of God, I believe, was poured out on all of them in a different way. And when they viewed the cross... That's where their faith was born. That's where faith is born, by viewing the King of glory. That's where our true faith is born, isn't it? By viewing the King of glory hanging there for your sins. 
and mine. Amen? Amen. All right, amen. Well, let's pray. Father, I ask that you'll give us a heart that we can view our Lord Jesus on the cross, that you'll make a deep impression on us, Lord, at what he suffered and when he hung there on our behalf and that that was the Son of God. Truly, this man was the Son of God. And just ask you, Lord, that you'll not let us forget what the centurion saw, what those women saw, and what Joseph of Arimathea saw. And I just ask you'll pour out your grace on everyone here in this room tonight, Lord. Those that don't know you and those that do, Lord, that our eyes can just be more open that what happened on that cross, Lord, was the greatest event of all of history. And most of all, Lord, that is where our salvation is wrought. That is where access to you is gained on the cross, through the cross, through what our Lord Jesus was willing to suffer on our behalf. And I just ask, Lord, you'll create a fear and a love for him through your word. And we thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.